Honestly, if a client has something that's an emergency or a quick fix, push it through and make it dirty. That's fine. But then after the emergency is taken care of, come back through and use the workflow and the process that you have to institute it in a way that's consistent with your workflow. Hello, and welcome to We Make the Internet. My name is Steve Hirsch. I'm the Director of Technical Marketing here at Pantheon, the platform for extraordinary websites. And extraordinary websites often require extraordinary workflows. Wait, is that right? Or do you make an extraordinary website with a boring but reliable workflow? I'm not sure, but that's what I want to talk about today. Website workflows and why do they matter, even if you're the person who is not using the workflow directly. Today, I am joined by two web chefs, as they call themselves at the agency for Kitchens. Dave Hansen Lang is Four Kitchens Director of Technical Strategy. He's responsible for prioritizing, coordinating, and leading technical projects while guiding client strategy. And Randy Ost joined Four Kitchens as Creative Director in 2015, where he works to translate complicated content problems into simple yet elegant solutions. Along with his design team, his mission is to create extraordinary user experiences that people want to talk about. <laughs> Dave and Randy, first of all, welcome. Thanks Hi. Hi. Yeah, it's great to be here. I pulled those introductions straight off of fourkitchens.com a few hours ago and you know, peeking behind the, the curtain here. We had a pre-interview discussion. Having read your bios on your website now, it makes even more sense why we gravitated towards this topic of website workflows. So to put a finer point on it, for today's episode, the question I'd like to discuss is who does the website workflow work for? And it may take us the whole episode to explore that question deeply. We'll probably find some layers, workflows within workflows. I should disclose my own interest in this topic. You know, working at Pantheon, a core part of our product with every Drupal and WordPress site, is that there's the same code deployment workflow. There's a live environment on Pantheon where the real website runs, but the code changes need to go first to a test environment before that a dev environment, optionally multi-dev environments. That's one type of web-related workflow. But before that, before I was working at Pantheon, I was the maintainer of the Workbench suite of modules in Drupal, which provided content workflows like a draft state or a needs review state or a publish state for pieces of content. But I'm many years removed from that world of directly applying these workflow decisions for individual clients. So I, I want to refresh with you guys my understanding of how are these details playing out for real teams in the real world that may take us into the weeds at some point. But I want to identify where are those in the weeds decisions bubbling up to become make or break levels of importance for whether or not a web team succeeds. So Randy, let's start with you. Maybe above the weeds level in the world of front-end web development for you right now, what does a typical workflow look like for you in front-end development to get a change in front-end code from your laptop to the live website? Sure. So looking at the trees and not the forest, you know, it starts in the design process and we want to have functioning code at the other end of it. Not necessarily a live site, but we want to have functioning code. And one of the ways in which we do that is bringing things into components. And at the design phase, we make our explorations. And once a client starts to approve things, we then kind of componentize the design. We take all of the summary views and buttons and cards and start turning them into components inside of the design. And we spec those out and we hand those off to front-end engineers. 
Now, on some projects, they're kind of different phases. The designer like specs everything out, hands it over to the front end team, and the front end team builds it with the occasional like you know review with the designer peeking in. We've been experimenting a lot lately. We've got a particular higher ed client that we've been working on a big robust design system for, and we've been having the designer and the front end engineer work together in tandem. So the designer will spend like a sprint designing something. And then the next sprint, the front-end engineer takes that and builds it. And then we spend the sprint after that kind of like reviewing it to QA test it. Make sure that like it's passing all of the accessibility stuff that we want it to do. After that, everything goes into a component library that allows us to review it and test it. So for instance, every component, we want to make sure that we write accessibility tests to make sure that we've got the the right color contrast. We're not failing anything that we can automatically test for like WCAG AA, AAA, Section 508, you know, any of the accessibility requirements that you have in higher education and honestly should be applied to every website that's out there. So, you know, our workflow process really is kind of that from nuts to bolt from start to finish. And I guess I kind of, you know, I'm so used to talking about this from a like insider, like point of view that I just realized I completely forgot to mention the client. <laughs> see, see, I feel like that's that's I mean, a great yeah, that's a great transition. We uh, should bring David into the conversation yeah. here. <laughs> Could it be more perfect? Randy, I was totally there with you. I was the technical architect, the lead dev often in my previous job. But like, oh yeah, there's a client whose budget is getting spent. And you know, we spent a few minutes there talking about like sprints and handoffs. And like, Dave, I imagine some of the clients you have to work with, you may have to explain like why that visual change they requested is gonna take two weeks of coding and then there's a sprint ends and begins and then there's a review and like that change didn't seem that big dave why does that change take so long <laughs> why is this why dave randy that workflow that you just described that's often what a workflow would look like as we're on a big project creating a new website but i think what the example that you're aiming for in your question there steve is, is more like the website is up and running and we want to make some sort of design addition or change. Like, what does that look like? And that's sometimes kind of like the workflow that Randy described, but it's sometimes kind of different because often we start in the place where like our product owner on the client side, I know not everyone listening to this podcast is going to be at an agency, but this is how it is in the agency world. That like our product owner on the client side, they have what is often like a vague idea or like vague need that they need to fill. We need to like present this kind of information. How can we do that? What we've got currently on the site isn't going to work for this new problem. And so in that case, what it often looks like, one of the technical strategists on our team might review, oh, well, we've got these six components that none of which quite fit for what your problem is. What do we do? We can design something new. Or we can take one of these existing components and sort of like rework it a little bit, make a variation on it or something. And we'll often talk through the pros and cons of either approach with the product owner. And depending on which one we choose, we'll either just dive in with maybe front-end development, make some changes to the component in the browser and get some feedback on how that works out. Or the other route would be like bring in a UX designer from Randy's team to create a new component. Oftentimes what we can do is like bring in someone who worked on the original design to sort of carry on that design consistency. 
but it's not 100% required. And then we can kind of go through like a mini version of that process that Randy described that happens during the full build, like design, front-end development, some back and forth, interactions with stakeholders, get it hooked up to Drupal so we can work with real content, and then get it pushed out to the live site. Yeah, and undercurrent in a few of the interviews I've done so far on this podcast has been like, oh, what we do is very different if it's a new site or if it's an existing site. And like, what do we mean by agile methodologies? And sprints may appear totally different when it's like a net new site build versus a thing that's live and being iterated upon. In either case, the processes that you're describing are like, these are multi-step workflows. And I imagine some of the clients or customers you're working with may ask like, hey, the thing I'm requesting isn't that big. Why can't you just change the color? And why can't it be done in an hour? You know, what you're describing, I think, provides benefits over longer term. And you're talking about processes that introduce robustness and stability. But I imagine there's some friction for impatient clients who just want the change that they asked for, who think it's not that complicated. I imagine there could be that friction. I don't experience it that often. Because often it's like, if they come to us and it's like, oh, there's this emergency, we need this color change within an hour. Like, sure, we can make some like manual override for this one spot to change the color and push it up quick. But because we really want to focus on building up something that's going to be flexible for a couple different use cases, going to work for them for the long term. And that's all like driven by the fact that it's kind of been this way for a while in WordPress, but now in Drupal, like website can live forever. And like it is probably going to live for several years to come. We got to work with solutions that are going to last that long and endure and be flexible. Yeah. So one thing I want to contribute to this is that workflow that slows things down. That workflow is something that is designed and crafted as part of whoever has like built this system. And, you know, whether you're inheriting that from a site that someone else built or building it yourself, what you're doing is risk mitigation. So you're trying to make sure that when you make a change, that that change aligns with your goals, that that change, you know, aligns with your brand, you know, at a high strategic level. But then at a a more technical level, you want to make sure that the changes that you're making are also going to be accessible and that they aren't going to be disruptive. Like there's the concept of like technical debt that happens. And so that small change that can get powered through very quickly, unless you follow it up with a more like permanent solution, because honestly, if a client has something that's an emergency or a quick fix, push it through and make it dirty. That's fine. But then after the emergency is taken care of, come back through and use the workflow and the process that you have to institute it in a way that's consistent with your workflow. And so that's just something I wanted to add on top of what you said, Dave. Yeah, well, one thing that comes to mind there is, and I agree, I would not want to be in a situation where a client is demanding like a color be changed within the hour. That's maybe an unrealistic example. But I have seen the case of a team feeling like they need to implement and I'm forgetting the name of the module, but the module that lets you add arbitrary CSS directly into Drupal, where a team might have CSS files, but because sometimes someone is demanding (laughs) custom CSS be written perhaps per page, we'll put in a module that lets us throw in arbitrary CSS on any given page. That is a total recipe for technical debt. Oh my goodness, yeah. For sure, yeah. (laughs) And I have seen sites use that module that whose name I'm happily forgetting that have 
an unaccountable number of custom CSS overrides on who knows how many pages, and it's a copy-paste nightmare. You mentioned, Randy, in there, sometimes inheriting workflows. And for either of you, when you do inherit a workflow, how do you approach honoring, if perhaps that's the right word, which decisions were made before you and which trade-offs were made while paying down technical debt as appropriate going forward? I mean, the way that I like to approach this is by having an honest conversation about the problems and the benefits of using the existing workflow. I find that some clients, they'll have an existing workflow and they'll think it's really great because it's solved problems that they've had in the past. But a lot of it, you know, doesn't actually make sense when you're coming to things from scratch. And what I find is that when you have an honest conversation like this, a lot of people respond very positively because like you're thinking, you're actually like, designing the process as you're kind of discussing it, because there may be problems that they have within the process. When I think back about inheriting workflows, I think that there's like two main scenarios that falls into that. Like we inherit like a non-workflow or you just kind of do some work and then you deploy it kind of thing. Or the other common scenario when we inherit a workflow is like, we inherit a workflow that maybe made sense like a couple of years back, but things have evolved and changed over time. And now there's these steps in there that nobody really knows why they're there or how the thing works. But in both of those, building on what Randy said, like I think the approach is the same. Like come in with an inquisitive mind with questions like, why is this thing here? How does it work? How do you deal with these kinds of scenarios? What if we did this instead of that? I mean, those are the kinds of approaches that work well with any sort of like potential for disagreement or conflict. The more I progress in my career, the more I discover that those things are valuable everywhere. Do you have advice for people who may be in your shoes, either inheriting a workflow or crafting a development workflow from scratch? How do they make sure that they are meeting the needs of all the different stakeholders, different types of developers, people who are sometimes in the system working on content every day, and there are more roles than that. How do you make sure all the stakeholders get satisfied? Oh, yeah, this is such an important topic in the work that we do, because there's all these groups that like are part of the workflow. And like, whether that's engineers, designers, content editors, C-suite stakeholders, everybody has their needs. And everybody advocates for their area, you know, designers want, Randy, you and your team, you want solid design. And engineers, they want a solid development workflow and really high quality code. And sometimes these needs, priorities, they're competing. Like we can't do everything at the same time. So what are we going to do first? And I find that a lot of my work is in even though I have a web development background that like I sort of disconnect that part from myself. And when I'm guiding our clients, it's like, okay, these are the things that are priority right now, but we can't do them all at once. Let's talk it through. Let's figure out what we focus on right now. So I deal with stakeholders and a very high emotional state in the process because like whenever it comes to like coming up with new features or modifying features and wireframing and prototyping and user experience testing and building out these things that's when a lot of people are putting energy into things like they want to they want to see it come alive and we want to make sure that the stakeholders understand why we're making the decisions that we're doing and why the workflow exists the way that it does like 
Why we are looking at it now is because we want to make sure that we're not doing something wrong. And why do we want to look at it now? We want to make sure that this prototype looks like what you want it to be. And why are we looking at it now? Because we built it in HTML, and this is what's actually going to get integrated into the site. We talk about why a lot, and you know, I want to make sure that the stakeholders are pleased with the work that's going on, and I want them to understand the work that's going on. Like That's a, a real key thing. Some stakeholders, they really want to just, you know, be very hands off and not work on workflow. So my team, whenever we're doing discovery, I will kind of come back around and be like, okay, is this a team that likes to take their time but thinking about things and implementing? Or is this a team that wants to be like off like a shot and just like move fast and break things? Yeah, on that idea of move fast and break things, I'm remembering a time where I was at the beginning of a project with a university and we did like a discovery exercise and what's the most important things. And the university president happened to be in the room at the time while we're discussing like, what trade-offs are we going to make around like budget and timeline and functionality and quality? And I realized no one in this room will feel safe saying, I am comfortable compromising quality right now. Like, let's move fast and break things with the university president in the room. Yeah. How do you ensure that, like, if move fast and break things is an appropriate attitude at this given time for this project, how do you make people even feel safe saying that? It's about making a tolerance for exploration. You know, there's, so we deal with a lot with higher education clients and higher education clients, you know, a lot of them have PhDs and they are so used to like this paper has to be perfect and right and vetted by multiple people before it goes out into the world. Because if it goes out into the world and it's wrong, I have messed up and my career is literally damaged. So they generally don't have as much of a tolerance for move fast and break things because, you know, that just doesn't jive with the environment that they're in. Taking a different view, if you have a, like a nonprofit group that's trying to raise funds, or you have like a cooking blog that's trying to like get noticed, you know, they have a higher tolerance for moving fast and breaking things because they have goals that they're trying to achieve. And they're starting to throw things at the wall to find out what works and what doesn't work. And so like, you know, you make that donate button up in the header and you make it large and red and you see what that does to your numbers. And, you know, maybe you change it to a message like what The Guardian does, which is like at the bottom of all of their articles, there's a paragraph that's like, hey, if you really enjoyed this article, we'd appreciate you donating. And you just keep like finding out what works in those sorts of environments because there's a higher tolerance for risk because they're trying to like get peak performance. So, you know, that risk-taking, moving fast and breaking things, you know, happens more often with businesses and entities that are trying to achieve specific goals than entities that are a little bit slower paced and are a little bit more about getting it right. That makes a whole lot of sense. I do want to take the conversation Back to something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, Randy, you mentioned the emotionally charged nature of the design phase. I'm remembering one tactic I often use to diffuse the emotionally charged part of, of the design implementation phase was to make sure that the header and footer were built out first. <laughs> if we're doing a full website from scratch and we, you know, back in the era, we're like, we have the Photoshop, full designs, and now we're building the website. We could build those Photoshop elements in any order, but we should do the header and footer first because they appear on every page and people will just feel less stressed if that is done as soon as possible. Do you have 
similar specific tips for diffusing the tension or stress that can occur in, in these sorts of phases? Yeah, so what you've just said plays into my philosophy as a designer on how to design things. A lot of designers like to start with the homepage because it's big and glorious. You get to do all sorts of funky, fun things. But my philosophy is, what are the most common things that are going to show up on the website? And then you start there. Like you start with the basic page that's just headline or header and text. And then you build out more robust basic pages until you've got like coverage for all the different components you need. And then you're like, okay, now I'm ready to tackle events because events is like you just add a couple of additional widgets to the basic page and boom, that design is done. As opposed to like starting with something more fun like events and then trying to backport it into a basic page. In my opinion, that's how you get boring basic pages is working from like homepage down. Yeah. <laughs> I'd much rather work in reverse. And so what that does is it allows our stakeholders, our clients, to view the design as a process and realize that they're building a foundation and then move up from there instead of starting with something like big and awesome like the homepage because then they're going to expect every comp to kind of be this, this big and robust. And that might not be appropriate for the website. A lot of the websites that we're working on, we are working to create a system for their content like we're not designing like their specific about page. We're designing a flexible toolkit for them to tell stories and build out their content, which is, you know, dramatically different. Like they're two different kinds of design. That process kind of like takes a little bit of the emotional charge out of it because they're not trying to look at like big and glorious. They're starting to realize that we're taking a craftsman's approach to building the website. And Randy, you're talking about like emotional charge. Steve, you were talking about how do you structure things to take the stress out of it. There's so many techniques that you can use to address these things. Steve, your example of like start with the header and footer. Yeah, sometimes that's what's going to do it to take the stress out. Sometimes people are stressed about, say, content creation. And so like we've got to focus on getting everything in place that we can so that people can start creating content, even if it looks terrible right now. Or they're stressed about like the integration with Salesforce. And you know that like there's a lot of pieces that got to go into that. So yeah, let's get that started first instead. I love the idea of like starting with like what people are anxious about and then trying to, you know, line things up to work around that. Yeah, that reminds me I was recently chatting with someone who's working on a new journalism-focused website from scratch. They have a, a long history of working on journalism-focused sites. And they're <laughs> because they're starting with a blank slate, they have to answer every workflow-related question under the sun <laughs> for the first time again. And I was recommending, okay, start with like the smallest unit of news you can imagine publishing. If in your journalism website, you may have an article that is as simple as like, prominent person tweets something and our journalist writes a paragraph or two of analysis, like if that's the smallest unit of news you can imagine publishing, make sure you can do that in all these different variables you're considering, figure out the smallest unit, make it work there. Because if it doesn't work there, no way is it going to work with something more complicated. How do you validate that the decisions being made are going to work and last over the long term? There's a lot of different ways. I mean, depending on where we are in the process, there's a lot of different ways to do that. But at the start of pretty much every project, we set goals for the project. 
We write very easy to remember goals that are usually fairly aspirational. And then underneath that, we put like what success is going to look like. One of the projects is we're working for a different higher education. We've got a lot of higher education clients. A different higher education client, one of their goals is to never have to upgrade again. So they're moving from Drupal 7 to, to Drupal 10, I think is the most recent version. So like they want to move to the latest Drupal. And like one of our goals, because they have a lot of technical debt, they don't want to have to like do this again. Like they don't want to do another big move. And we're like, all right, so one of the big goals is never have another like major upgrade like this again. And underneath that, as measurables, we have like use Drupal because Drupal has an iterative process for upgrading now, which is fantastic. I love that Drupal has done that. And then like we have a couple of other things, like for instance, like implementing development workflows to make sure that like they don't have as much technical debt as they usually do. For instance, one of the things is going to be like when we hand it off to them, they are going to do pair programming. I don't know if pair programming is the right term, but we do pull request reviews where a second engineer or developer reviews the code both functionally and critically to make sure that the code is well-written and executes as promised. We often at Pantheon say that Website operations is a team sport. Dave, I think you've worked with Randy as a teammate for some time now. What makes Randy a good teammate? Like, What are qualities or behaviors, things he does that you wish more people out in the working world did? At Four Kitchens, we're really focused on like our core values. One of our core values is yes and. What we mean by that is like someone's got an idea or something, you don't think it's great, don't shoot it down. Can you somehow progress the conversation along? Randy is a great exemplar of this. I can't even imagine Randy like shooting down an idea, but he builds upon an idea and takes it to the next level. That's great to hear. Randy, same question for you. What makes Dave a good teammate? The thing about Dave that I really, really like and enjoy is Dave's thoughtfulness. So, you know, I'm prone to speaking before thinking. Dave thinks before speaking. And like some of the like discussions that we've been in, like when Dave opens his mouth and contributes, it's just gold, like all the time. And I really appreciate his insight and his thoughtfulness. So like high five to you, Dave. Oh, thanks a lot, Randy. Oh, man, that's what we're looking for on We Make the Internet. If we can all learn from what, what each other are, are naturally good at, I think we'll be in a better place as web professionals, as an industry. Randy Ost, Dave Hansen-Lang, thanks so much for joining me on We Make the Internet. Thanks a lot, Steve. Thanks for having us. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Make the Internet. If you like today's show, please give us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. Hey, and even if you didn't like today's show, you can still leave a review saying why. Feedback is important here on the internet. It's how we get better. Special thanks to Jeff Duba, Jeff Large, and Maggie Fisher of Come Alive Creative for podcast production work. You can find them at comealivecreative.com. I'm your host, Steve Persh. You can find me just about everywhere online as at Steve Vector. See you on the internet.